Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Can we just take one moment and appreciate that for 126 consecutive weeks, without missing a beat, there has been a new episode of this podcast, Uh, and more than 90% of those were face-to-face interviews all through the two years of COVID. It could be outside on a park bench. It could be you know, on a dock by the bay, you know, separated. It could be masked. Um, but that that's something I'm really, really proud of. And so even though I had a vacation last week, Liz, our producer, the very capable Liz Egan, Bruno, uh, she didn't have a vacation, and she has a vacation this week, but she still produced the podcast. That's the kind of people you're dealing with. That's unbelievable. And I am just so grateful to work with such pros. Um, A lot of times you'll hear podcasts, they'll do, oh, this is such and such a season or such and such a, you know, and then we're going to take a hiatus or whatever. No, no, have never taken a break. Maybe that's not good. Maybe it is. But I, you know, I'm proud of that. It's a remarkable consistency because there have been remarkable women, including the one today, Rachel Clapp. Miller. Rachel Clapp was my producer, investigative producer, and we won national awards with a report that she carried the hidden camera on about um, the Alcoholic Beverage Control Board uh, spending like upwards of $10,000 on a dinner to congratulate themselves. We're talking $100, you know, tequila drinks and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars for wine, and um, it won an Emmy, it won um, the National Headliner Awards, and Rachel, you know, gets very little of the credit. And I asked her when I went from broadcasting to podcasting to be one of the developmental producers. And so she kind of, you know, pitches lots of thoughts, and she has a master's and is a master marketer, has a master's degree from Wake Forest. And, um, just super smart. You'll pick up really quickly how smart she is. So, Rachel Clapp Miller and the show. When you work in news and you have that anxiety all the time about your job or what you're missing or that you're going to be late or you're going to miss the deadline, and then you step out of that, I've never returned to that state again. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hi there, I'm Stuart Watson, and welcome to Man Listening. I've interviewed the other two developmental producers of this program, Allison Andrews and Roshanda Pratt, and the Roe Show live, and they've been on, And but I've been trying to get in touch with Rachel Clapp Miller, the third developmental producer, and She's she works a lot. It's hard to get 
in touch with her. It's hard to, for us to get up, but we did. We met her office uh, during her lunch break, and she's wonderful, very soft-spoken, and in TV news had to share the cubicle next to me sometimes, which is kind of like on the Hollywood Squares when you're right next to each other, and, um, and had to endure hearing me shout obscenities and slam the phone down a lot. Um, and so the woman's a saint. Uh, and very interesting, was an intern in the Clinton White House right after Monica Lewinsky. You'll hear, you'll hear, oh, there's some jewels in this and also some jewels about marketing. Rachel Clapp Miller. Where were you born? I was born in Shermansburg, New York. I guess maybe Ithaca, right on the border, the hospital in Ithaca, New York. What did your dad do that, or your mom do that took you up to... New York. What did My they? parents were both high school teachers in Trumansburg, New York, in the high school that I went to. Did you have your mother and or father as teachers? I absolutely did. I had them both. How were they as teachers? They were great, I will say. So it was a very small high school. My dad was the typing teacher. A space, A. I had a phonograph. That's how long <laughs> okay. ago that. Well, that I was on be. a computer, um, and my mother taught health and sex education. Oh my God! Yeah, you so really you opened had up with sex the, ed. Yep. In, from you. And what was the curriculum like in New York? Wow. Like, what was she teaching from? Were the boys and girls together? Yes. Are you? This was very. I mean, I look back on it, and so I grew up in the '80s. Well, I guess I was. In, I was in high school in the 90s, but it was a very liberal area and the curriculum was very liberal. Looking back, I didn't, I mean, I just, what it was what it was, but it was um, the birthing movie. There was a whole contraception unit. I remember my uh, mother, we would go to Planned Parenthood to Ithaca on errands and she would go pick up films and samples that she would show in her class. Now, did your mother get you um, the pill or like, did she? No, I did that on my own. Um, but I mean, she, she would have been completely cool yeah. with it. But the, um, but like she would, like you look back on it and I feel like right now there'd be probably be a protest about that, but it was just how it was. It was the, I a don't know if that was- protest in New York? Well, down here, I mean, the, it was the New York State curriculum. I mean, one of the things she would do was take a condom and she would take like a two liter of like an old Diet Coke or whatever and fill it up with water and take the Diet Coke and pour the entire thing of water. So a two liter of Diet Coke, put all that water into the condom so it would stretch. And so she would show people like how big it would. So if a guy told you it wouldn't fit like this, you should remember this <laughs> demonstration. And it didn't burst? No. No. But like you think about that and I'm like, oh, that's my mother up there. I thought you were going to say the old condom on the banana or something. Mm -mm. To, to, to show you. Go bigger, you Stuart. Go bigger. <laughs> how, do you, how do you use it? And, and so it was also, I mean, it was like pragmatic. like. Yeah, this was just how it was. How about uh, gay friendly? Very gay friendly. Really? Yes. And um, so not only could they say the word gay, they were saying sometimes sex occurs between. Yeah, I don't remember like 
when a man and a man love each other very much. Yeah, I don't remember it being like a big like lesson or I just remember it always being understood. I mean, so Trumansburg, my hometown is right next to Ithaca, New York, which is right by Cornell University. It's right by Ithaca College. It's very liberal part of upstate New York. I've heard uh, some of not number one, but among the most PhDs per capita in the country. Yes. Um, I would not be surprised. It's just very, I mean, they were doing hemp seeds and chia and organic before it was cool, like, you know, 84 probably. <laughs> it wasn't. So it's very, um, it's just a very liberal area. We were talking, you know, earlier, it's just you have the influence of schools and education. I wonder if the pregnancy rates are lower. It kind of, you know, like the unintended pregnancy, the teen pregnancy business. I mean, perhaps. You do have this, like, you have Ithaca, which is very educated um, demo, I would say. And then you have very rural areas around that. It's very, like, dairy farms, and it can be a very rural area. So there's this, um, you know, you drive an hour, it's a very different yeah. Did you have any brothers or sisters? Yes, I have a younger sister. She's three years younger than me. Uh, and you guys are close? Yeah. Does she been, live nearby or does she live up there? She is a nurse at uh, Chapel Hill. Oh. She um, has been there ever since she graduated school. She's been in the UNC healthcare system through a variety of roles. Yeah. I always think it's funny that, you know, I did TV and she went into nursing. Wow. Yeah. Why is, why is that odd? It's just very different. Oh, yeah. <laughs> paths. Yeah. Very different paths. It is. So uh, what was Rachel like as a little girl, like two or three years old? I always played sports. I loved music. And I feel like I was pretty inquisitive a lot of times. I, I just remember asking questions and wondering about things. And Favorite sport? So um, growing up, I played volleyball and tennis, and I loved them both. I played volleyball in college, so that's the one I tended, I stuck with. But now I'm playing tennis again after a large break. Is it fun? Oh, I'm having the best time. Although the body doesn't do what it did <laughs> 20 years Start. ago. I feel like Stop. I was definitely better at 18, but um, I have found myself playing a lot more and I really enjoy it. Not hyper-competitive. Singles or doubles? I play both. I'm not hyper-competitive, but I have noticed, you know, those traits that I had growing up have not gone away. I don't like to lose, although I, I do lose in tennis quite, quite a bit. And so you played on the college team in volleyball? In, yep. Where'd you go? Lynchburg College. Oh, that's not huge. In Virginia. No, it was Division Three. Yeah. Couple thousand students. It's now the University of Lynchburg, but when I was there, it's Lynchburg College. Did you sing? Did you? No, I wanted to sing, and my parents wouldn't pay for voice lessons, so they probably still regret that because I still like to sing. I'm just not ever on key. Um, <laughs> but I loved all that kind of music, and then I um, got really into listening to country music when I was in high school, and I still listen to all that kind of music. 
I played the French horn in middle school, but I wasn't like really good at it. By country music, what were some of your artists? Oh, well, so this was the 90s. This was like Garth Brooks, Faith Hill, Tim McGraw, like. Have you ever met any of them? Yeah. Um, I have my, I have a picture with Tim McGraw. I met Faith Hill in the lobby of the Binghamton Holiday Inn one time. Was she nice? She was very nice. She was opening up for Reba McIntyre. I think she had like one song out. But my friend, my best friend in high school, we used to like go to concerts and it was really easy. It wasn't difficult to like meet the country singers. I mean, we well, when I worked in Nashville in local TV news, they had what they call fanfare. Right, exactly. And I don't know if they do that anymore, but what I try to explain to people is country music stars, like people expect that they're just like your neighbor. This is right. like presumed familiarity. And so just like NASCAR drivers, they're expected to stand there and sign every yeah. single thing. And it takes hours. Mm -hmm. And they are just, it's just part of the culture. There's no such thing as I don't have time for a selfie or I don't have time for you or whatever. You're expected to sort of give over your life. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, but that's also fostering engagement. I mean, if you think about fanfare, I always wanted to go to fanfare. We never did. Um, I think it was in June and New York schools didn't get out until like late June or whatever. But that was like the social media before social media. Now you can post on Instagram and do videos on your Instagram and your TikTok. And, you know, back then you have your fan club and you're going to do an event at the Wild Horse Saloon and have everybody show up. I mean, that's how you would engage. Yeah, that old like radio game was something else, I feel like. Yeah, and I mean, those days of, you know, like the days of like a Wolfman Jack or, oh, right. you know. Yeah. I mean, people don't realize that the now. Casey's top, Casey Kasem's top 40. Right, oh, and that everybody listened to either this or this mm -hmm. or this, you know. It wasn't just all over the, right. all over the map. And then you drive to like a place where nothing came in. You know, yeah. in your car. Yeah. And it fade out. Station. Yeah. Yeah. And we've <laughs> gone from the time to that to where you have to explain to people what podcasts are. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Here we are. Why'd you pick Lynchburg? So, well, I think I wanted to study communication. I wanted to play volleyball. I could do both there. And... It's a very small school. I wasn't necessarily looking for a small school, but it seemed big to me. I mean, Lynchburg's, I think, was like 2,200 students when I went there. I don't know how big it is now, but, you know, coming from a school with 400 people, that seemed big to me, So, you know, even though it was really small. Is that where Liberty? Yes. And Liberty's much bigger. Yes. Um, and I just wanted to go south. I mean, the brutal winners. There's just, I wanted to get out of the cold. Were you guys the sinners? Were you? Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yes, absolutely. So they gave you some place to do mission work. They could go. They would. There they were could, people that come They could go campus. and save you guys. It's they could so come true. over and save you. So true. It was really, because, you know, growing up in upstate New York, I never was exposed to, like, that type of religion, I would say, like very fundamentalist. Did you go and to church? Was, yes, Catholic, Roman mm -hmm. Catholic. 
every every weekend, every holy day, even on vacation. Um, so that was just like a different world to me um, to be exposed to. It was just very interest, interesting. Uh, I remember, so they were Division One and we were Division Three, and one of our coaches, like I think, coached over there. Like they knew some of the volleyball players over there or something. I don't know, but. Like I remember they were trying to like organize us playing together on like a Sunday or something and she told me that some of the girls didn't want to play with us because, because we were because we went to Lynchburg and we weren't real I Christians I guess not yeah or the that right was their people. perception and some of that might rub off right and I remember like somehow meeting a guy over there that like we went out on a date. I don't even know how we met, but he would, I remember, I don't remember all the details. I just remember him like asking me some really specific questions about God and Jesus and somebody who grew up Catholic my whole life and then is obviously Christian and believed. And I just remember us getting into this like screaming argument about something. You know, going to school down, I mean, in the South and in Jerry Falwell country, I would say exposed me to, you know, just different approaches to Christianity and religion that I hadn't been exposed to. And like nobody even, it wasn't church first in Truensburg, New York. I mean, there's God-fearing people there, but I think some of these other areas, it's very much church first. And there it was for a lot of people, but I remember going home with some teammates who were like Pentecostal holiness and I would went to church with them on a Sunday and people were like shouting and doing all that crazy stuff. And That's just calls, entertainment. <laughs> just altar call, I was just like sitting there with bug eyes, like what is going on? First of all, I could barely understand anybody because they had like such thick Southern drawls. And they were like, oh, she brought her friend from New York, you know, that kind of thing. And I feel like that helped, helped me relate a lot of times to uh, some people in different different types of communities. When you major in communication, that could be anything. Mm -hmm. What did you have in mind? Why communication? Well, I wanted to do television. I loved television, and I didn't really like particularly think I wanted to do news, so to speak. But um, I always liked news. I mean, we didn't have cable growing up because it didn't come to where we lived, not because we were against the television. The television was always on, but we only got four stations. And so we were all, everybody always watched the same thing. So I always watched the news. Did you get Syracuse or Binghamton? Syracuse. And sometimes we'd get Binghamton if the antenna was right. We could get it. <laughs> you see <laughs> kids, an antenna was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so we'd get Syracuse and sometimes Binghamton. But uh, so we always watched the news, always watched like Oprah and Donahue. My mom always had that on. So I was just loved television from the get-go and media. And I always knew that's what I was going to do. I mean, I one of my first job was working at the AM radio station in Trumansburg. Uh, and what did you do there? I was a board op. And then for a while, I they let me like host my own little show on Saturdays. Oh, what was that about? Well, they played country music, so I kind of like DJ'd. Did you get to pick any of the songs? Yeah, yeah. You had to like play certain 
certain songs like so many times an hour, like the hot songs, whatever, if they were like color coded or something. But Do I you have a tape? I don't. Do you wish you had a tape? Maybe, I don't know. I'm sure I, in my head I was a lot better than I was. <laughs> so what was your first job out of college? My first job out of college was a field producer with a news service. Um, their offices were at 400 North Capitol in the C-SPAN building in D.C. I mean, I had a front page to history. Who's somebody that you like, wow, I can't believe I met? Uh, well, I mean, I would go to the White House occasionally. Did you meet the president? That was when Clinton was there. I mean, I wouldn't say meet meet him, but it would be like at an event that he was doing. So there'd um, be maybe a hundred people? Yeah, like in a rose garden type thing or, um, I mean. But no one-on-ones, no. Not with the president. I mean, I would produce live shots. I did live shot with Senator McCain, um, Sheila Jackson Lee. Uh, Were they pretty nice? Jesse Jackson Jr. I mean, sometimes, sometimes not. Just so you have to think, right? They're probably voting on the Hill or they're running from something and they're going to go be a guest on CNBC or Fox News or whatever live shot company we were producing for. Was but, anyone like a real asshole? Yes. Who? Arlen Specter. <laughs> God rest his soul. He's horrible. <laughs> horrible. Didn't think the time, time rules applied to him. Yeah, he was just like yell, and you could just tell. So sometimes you could tell the um, members that like really scared their staff because like Arlen Specter's staff would always come like ten minutes before he would show up and make sure like the chair was right or um, the water was there. And I like to think I, that nowadays it's harder to get away with that. I mean, may, I mean, I, you don't think there's some jerks working up there away from the camera? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, come on. But also, if you want to run for president, it, it ends up hurting you. Oh, yeah. But, you know, there's also that environment. I mean, oh, it's all so much about who you work for and who you saw that day. Or um, I remember interning in D.C., it was always about, like, what event you got to go to or what members you saw or how close are you to the member. Or the I do not like that. No, it, it, that's, it's very, well, in my experience in D.C., it was very much that environment. And I didn't, I never got I think it's that. very male, very hierarchical. But it also creates this environment of where people, you have a bunch of yes, ma'am, yes, sir, people around you, or around Which everyone. Which is not at all healthy. Uh, no, but I mean, that's what it... I could see how that just fosters the egos of politicians. Did you notice that the women were different? Or were they pretty much the same? I mean, pretty much the same. I didn't really notice anything. I mean, I also was, you know, we're much more woke now. I don't know, looking back, if I would think of anything. But it's just... It's a very competitive environment in some ways, and I think making that my first news job, because I, you know, you apply everywhere. I did all the markets and everything, and 
um, I think it was really important for me career-wise because I immediately saw what it would be like if you were at the network because I was working alongside network reporters at the press conferences. I mean, you'd always see them in the galleries or doing their live shots and I'm like, God, they are schlepping the same stuff I am, making a lot more money, but I'm like, I remember at the time, Rita Cosby was on Fox News and um, the Washington Correspondents' Dinner was that night and uh, something was breaking. I can't remember what it was, but like we were all late and our boss had got us tickets to this event and it was so cool. So the president was there, all the cabinet, the whole thing. And we got to dress up and go. It was at the um, Washington Hilton, the, where President Reagan was shot. Uh, the Hinkley Hilton, as they call it, and um, <laughs> I remember that day, and then we were all sitting there having this like fabulous dinner, I mean, you know, the whole shebang, and like, Rita Cosby came in late in her evening gown, and then I saw her have to leave early, and I'm like, gosh, she has to go back to work. I'm like, I just never wanted my work to rule my life like that, and I knew that if I like worked my way up the news ranks, that was going to be it. And then... I think that job also taught me that, I mean, I just didn't get wrapped up in the ego of, I don't know, celebrity or po politicians or, because I, first of all, I was working so hard, I never had time to like, be like, oh, there's Ted Kennedy, keep moving, <laughs> you know, you're like, we have a live shot. And so, I, although I would try to take it in, I just... I don't, I don't know what the adjective is for that, but it definitely gave me a foundation of not being, I don't know, overtaken is the word, or um, not to believe in the facade of, that some of these public figures have. Thing you're proudest of from your time in TV news? TV news? So, well, I'm pretty proud of our ABC investigation of getting that hidden camera that night. The liquor board. Yeah, the liquor board investigation. You were the hidden camera person. Yeah, I was. <laughs> um, I got a lady, one time this lady had like a, an error on her, the VIN report from CarMax, and it was like something cost her like $20,000 to like, and I got that taken away from her. She was very happy, I felt good about that. She sent me a plant. It's okay. interesting that, that sometimes it's the, the little details, it's the small things. I mean, there's some really important stories that I'm, I was happy to be able to tell and I wish I could have invoked more change for the people or like helped them more um, other than just bring awareness to the story. I think that's one of the things that I didn't like about it or it was hard for me is that you become so, it was hard to separate the emotion of like talking to somebody whose son had died or you know it was in like who's lost their home in a tornado and to be like okay thanks gotta go edit for my story you know and just like turn it off I just I felt I got burned out on that a while I mean when I was producing the morning show which I hated working overnights I just like I can't believe like in the morning I'm like oh I hope we have like a shooting or something so I have an easy lead I mean, that's just like horrible mentality to like go through your day. 
<laughs> did you ever catch yourself going, who am I or what have I become that I'm wishing yeah. for somebody to get shot? Right, exactly. It's on that morning show shift, I absolutely did. I just like worked really hard to get off of it. Yeah. Because it just, I just was never, I mean, after, so I didn't mention, but before I worked in DC, I was an intern at the White House, my junior, between my junior and senior year of college. Who and was the president then? President Clinton. Oh, wow. It was right after Lewinsky broke. Oh, wow. But he hadn't admitted. So you guys were probably treated very differently. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he hadn't admitted to it yet, or it hadn't like come out in that deposition, but it had already broke that story. Um, wow, you buried the lead, Rachel. What part of the White House did you work in? Presidential letters and messages is part of the correspondence office, which is like glorified for the mail. <laughs> but the, the department I worked in was, I don't know, they called it like VIP mail. So if like a celebrity wrote to the president or like if it was a lawmaker that went to a different office, intergovernmental, uh, mail or correspondence but this was like anybody high profile that would write it would go through this like process and they would track it so it would be um, you know this one would be for the president's signature or like the president would look at a newspaper or something and put a post-it note like hey send this person a letter and it would go to this office and they would write a letter like oh the president read your article whatever do you have a picture of you and Clinton I have the intern photo that the group intern photo. Oh, it's not individual. No, I have photos of being close to, like, really close pictures that I took because I went to the, was it a staffer day or something? And I was able to do that. And I volunteered at a state visit um, for the Prime Minister of South Korea. So I was very close to the president so I could take pictures and stuff. But I don't have, like, Here's me and Bill. Okay. Well, what was the buzz among interns about the whole Lewinsky stuff? Well, you know, it was, so you have a group of interns that were from all walks of, I think I interned with a Kennedy, like there was. And some, it's men and women, right? Yeah, and there was like, I mean, some big like players, right? Like these, I think one of the girls I interned with, like her, she lived off Park Avenue. She wasn't from Charlottesburg, New York. So <laughs> there was like a contingent of us um, who were not from donors or wherever these people get the internship. Like there was a few of us that just like applied. Like I filled out the application and I was accepted, which is probably why I was in correspondence and not like the press secretary's office or something. So I had this like group of friends. Some of them were from Arkansas. There was a high number of interns from Arkansas because of Clinton. Uh, and, you know, we didn't really come from, I mean, we just applied. We didn't even know why we were there. And so we were among these, like, daughters of, and sons of, like, bigwigs. And so you had people coming in from different perspectives. And, but it was very much an environment. I mean, you're, I was 20, 21. I turned 21 that summer. I mean, I'm in the White House working every day. You're scared to death. I just followed what they told me to do. <laughs> you know, I mean, I remember asking one of the, there was a, an employee who was like pretty young. I think she was just out of school and somebody asked, I don't know if I did, I probably did. Uh, and they just, they were like, well, I think she's crazy, you know. 
So this was that, this was like a moment in time there where people were thinking that he was completely innocent. So, um, but I don't remember like talking about a lot. I remember being very like follow protocol. I remember on day one, we got this huge briefing about how we weren't allowed to talk to the, any members of the press. I remember that very vividly because <laughs> I was like, hmm, I wonder why they're telling us that. But I think there was a, a you know, you had to play by the rules there. You would get, it was very much a privilege to be there. And so you didn't want to do anything that messed that up by bringing up the latest scandal. But I had a great experience. I mean, the people that I worked with, I, I loved and it was, I was very thankful for it and shocked I was there half the time. And just, I really just tried to like take it in while I was there. Cause I, I will say I did have the presence to know that I was like, had a front row seat to history and this was something I would never get again. And I would be able to tell my children's children about and I knew it was like a big deal I was able to like get my parents a tour of the West Wing and it was great when you look back on the Lewinsky thing now with all this you know more than a quarter century past what do you make of it I remember I remember people from my hometown when I would go back and I mean it, it people would always ask me I mean it was like a in the you know social circles they would say, oh, what do you think about that? And um, I remember saying at the time, having a conversation with a family friend, I was like, I just think that he obviously abused his position, but being in that environment, I can see how it would happen. Um, not like, you know, everything, like the sexual stuff, I didn't see anything like that, right? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is like when you're in an environment where these politicians are like put on these pedestals, like, because it's all about, oh, did you get to go to this event today? And not just the White House, I mean, it's all over Capitol Hill if you're in that intern culture. It's like, oh, I got to go to this press conference, or oh, yeah, we had lunch with the congressman today, or. It's like royalty. There's yeah, a hierarchy. Are, There's right. a pecking order. So you're, and, and you're like, if you are able to do that, it's like you're higher, you are perceived as better, and that's what everybody's trying to do. I mean, even the staffers, that's, your pecking order is like where your office is. If your office is in West Wing, you're higher up in the organization. If you're in the old executive <laughs> office building, you're not. If you have, um, what do they call it? The blue badge. The blue badge had... White House access, there's another, I think it was red, had OEOB, Old Executive Office Bill Access. Mm -hmm. So it, that was the culture there. So if you're like 22 and you're like there and the president's like, hey, work in the West Wing or hey, I'll get you a job at Revlon. I mean, or like what, how does it not happen? Yeah. I could just see somebody at that age, it, it's so easy to get like sucked up in that celebrity of whatever. And I mean, there it's the politicians. It's so easy to not see things for what they really are. Yeah, and to lose a sense of what's really important. Yeah, I mean, they talk about the DC bubble. It's very true. Yeah. You, you go out there. I just also remember like going to a bar or something and meeting guys and they're talking about a bill. Like that's what people are talking about, HR, whatever. 
and we're like 21. So at night, like you do a live shot. I remember one time I got in the elevator with Oliver North because he was like coming from something. And we got in the parking garage and he's like, are you by yourself? And I said, yeah, but I'm just parked over there. He's like, I'll walk you to your car. And I got in the car, I was like, oh my gosh, Oliver North just like walked me to my car. That was nice. It was very nice, yeah. I also will say like, you know, you'd ask me who was nice and who wasn't. Some of the, um, some of the politicians who I would never agree with ideologically <laughs> were, extremely nice. Like? Orrin Hatch was lovely, always very nice. I always like, so you would get the live shot and it's they would tell Mormons, you the guest. It's the... Well, you would get the uh, live shot and the guest and you're like, oh. Like if you got an Arlen Specter shoot, you're like, here we go. It's on. Gonna, yeah, he's gonna be mean. <laughs> you gotta feel like that that comes around, that eventually karma. Yeah. Do you feel like TV news is a very masculine environment. I wouldn't say it's a masculine environment. I think it's a difficult environment. What, what makes it difficult? Well, you're an incredible deadline pressure. There, it's also its own bubble where things matter so much there that don't matter to the rest of the world. Um, like? Like, oh, this, we need to get this comment from this person so we have it at six when it, I mean, sometimes it's important, but sometimes it's like not that big of a deal. Um, I mean, I, it's a very loose environment, which it's, you know, people screaming at each other, swear words, all of that. <laughs> I think of that as masculine, masculine the angry so. and the, all that. I don't know. I mean, I've had some women. <laughs> Yeah, the boss that screamed the most at me was a woman. Um, so, but it's just, a, you know. I think I that's because they adopt this. They, yeah, well, because you have to if you're going to, you know, it's interesting. You have to kind of have that to be successful. I mean, if really somebody yells at you, you got to be able to yell back. Yeah. Uh, and it's weird, like, you're in that environment, and then you go to other environments, and you're like, I'm the loudest one here. I wonder why. Yeah. But, you know, in some I've like loved that. I love, to this day, I'm always like working from home. I have the TV on. My husband's like, how are you working? I'm like, I, there's like comfort and noise for me. Yeah, background around. noise. Yeah, like to have several things going at once. Yeah. It's, I have no problems. So what did you get your master's in? Communication. I mean, but what kind? So it's a master's in communication. I did my master's thesis on organizational communication, business communication um, through social media. And social media was just coming gangbusters. Yeah, so this would have been 2010, 2012. So Twitter, I think, started in 07, so it was pretty new. I don't and think Facebook Instagram was not that old then. No, like it was, a, that's what I looked at, Twitter and Facebook in my, in my master's research. So there weren't really, Google Plus had like just started, but nobody knew how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> they, they never found out either. <laughs> exactly, it never did. <laughs> <laughs> what about it? Like, what did you learn? Because it strikes me that that would have made you a really desirable hire because everyone was claiming to be an expert in social media and its applications for business and, and business to business communication and business to customer 
Um, but there were very, very few people who actually were expert at it um, who were not like 14 years old. Right, everyone was having their <laughs> interns do it back then, right? So that's why I, I always wanted to get my master's, but I also never had success like having somebody look at my resume with a TV background and hiring me for a business role because while they could see like how how the skills might transfer, how my journalistic skills might transfer, if it was between me and somebody who'd actually done the PR job before or done the communication writing job before, I always lost out. And so I was hoping that my masters would give me some teeth to get those jobs and that's why I studied business communication because I wanted to have something to talk about in these interviews and show what I did and I it, it did help me in a lot of the interviews I didn't have like a ton of offers or anything to um, to after grad school I mean I feel like I would have probably landed something but I had an offer to work for a webinar company, um, a webinar platform, and help kind of be the producer for them on the webinar, where like a client would call and you would help them like execute their webinar. But I remember telling that recruiter, I, I couldn't believe I turned on a job. You know, I'm like, oh my god, I haven't worked for two years and I'm turning on a job. But I was like, I don't want to be the. I was basically going to be a webinar producer, so all I was doing was shifting what I did. And like being a webinar producer, and I was like, I want to be the client that's like directing you what to do. So I turned that down. And here at um, my company now, they I had a friend that I knew because she um, did PR, and she pitched me stories. So I knew her, and we um, developed a friendship. She had just started working here, and we. Um, she said they need somebody to come and they have a lot of interviews shot but they need somebody to put them together and put together testimonial videos and she's like could you come in on like a contract and I was like yes that would be great because that will give me something while I look for something else and it gave me the strength to turn on that job I didn't want and I'm still here 10 years later yeah and meanwhile social is gone every which way mm -hmm. how do you view social now like, how do you do social without it completely consuming you? Like your off hours, your family time. How, how do you, how do you how do you put it down? How do you how do you have a healthy? I'm gonna put my phone away and play with my son. I know it's struggle. I mean, I struggle with it, and I think it doesn't have to be. Well, I think it's part of like being in the news. Like you're always like what's the latest thing? Like, what is it? I mean, it might not be whatever, you know, Gaston County court decision, but it could be like, what's on TMZ? Like, I want to know. Like, I have always craved information. That's why I think I was good at journalism and why I was successful in TV news. But, so that's it's just hard to turn off anyway, and social just gives you so much access to people. But how are you not anxious, neurotic, depressed? When you work in news and you have that anxiety all the time about your job or what you're missing or that you're going to be late or you're going to miss the deadline, and then you step out of that, I've never returned to that state again.
nor will I. And you know, people are just like, oh my God, there's, there's peace. Yeah, you just have such a better balance of life. Like, and what I, matters. Yeah, I don't have to, like even what I do now, if it gets stressful, it never has to be done in two minutes like it did. At that in that news environment, and also guess what? If I mess up, they're not going to be screaming profanities in my face yeah. because we have some decorum and policies that prevent that. <laughs> yeah, the whole anger management is kind of lost. It's like the whole enterprise is fueled by anger. Yeah, exactly. That's what makes people good at the job, I guess. I don't it, know. It's it's rage is a commodity. Right, right. It absolutely is. Like you are the cool person if you. Oh, let me tell you about this time I flipped out or I mean it almost becomes these like stories of valor and the thing is is if your brand is the raging you know person on TV always mm -hmm. angry at something you keep that up it'll kill you yeah. you know I mean you can have a heart attack well and I think if you're if you if you manage social for brand that's very different than if you're like an influencer. I mean, I don't know what that's like. I'm not an influencer, but it's. Uh, what does that word me. mean? I hear it thrown around. Well, no, if, if like I'm the brand. So if Rachel had a million Instagram followers, that would uh. be a very different environment than Rachel managing the social for a brand that is not her. What do you, what do you think of that phrase, personal brand? Well, I think it's important. I mean, I think. It's how we project ourselves to the people around us. I think something strikes me as false about that. Like you're adopting something. Like, oh, like the, if there's any sort of sort of slippage whatsoever between. Well, then your brand's not authentic. Right. I mean. And you think people pick up on that? Yeah, you have to have an authentic brand or your professional presence. I think it's, it's people aren't. They it's. You can see through that, right? We were talking about the politicians and how that's why somebody up. like a Dolly Parton mm -hmm. is such an intriguing person because you know the hair is false, the eyelashes are false, you know, but it's almost like people who say that um, Disney World is a very authentic thing because it's true to what it is. It right. doesn't pretend to be not pretend. Right. Exactly. That's very true. And Dolly tells you it's fake. So yeah. there's authenticity in that. I think the more like brands do that, the more successful they are. Yeah. Like it, it is what it is. If a scandal happens or something doesn't go right, I appreciate a good response or I appreciate people managing it effectively. Like when I get an email and there's something wrong in it and then I get an email five minutes later that's like, oops, we goofed. I'm like, oh, sorry, I've done that before. Or like, I'm like, I like, I appreciate a good response around some of those things. In grad school, one of the, Peter Sandman has a, I forgot how many, but there's like these outrage reducers. You would love him, his research. And it's like, these are the tenants that help reduce people's outrage at you. And one of them, Oh, I want to know them all. Yeah, what are the other yeah. ones? I can't remember. I'll send them to you. They're just, it's, that's it. It's, well, you have the expression flaw on the sword. Like, if you admit it, 
people understand that you know that what you did is, is wrong. Like there's that understanding. I want you to understand that what you did was horrible and it was wrong. And now we can, if we level set on that, now we can address and figure out a solution. Yeah, people really do understand. I mean, that. it's a great lesson to like, just it, the, professionally, I mean, we make mistakes all the time and they might be small, they may be big, but owning it from the start can really um, avoid a lot of a conflict. Like I'll, I was doing a Zoom screen share and it was the person I was on the screen share with clearly had not looked at the 14 emails I had sent prior to this <laughs> conversation or like all the stuff I had written. and. I like I am is my colleague on the phone. I was like, I don't think he has even read this content. And it was a pop-up window and I was screen sharing. And then it's over there and like somebody's texting me like, we can see your screen and I'm not even paying attention. And then he's like, why are you writing notes? He totally called me out on the Zoom. And then my heart was just like, oh. No, what, what I said was not that bad and also very true, but I just, well, did it help him? Did, did you say, have you read it? <laughs> no, I didn't. I just completely, I mean, maybe I shouldn't have, but I, I called immediately and I was like, I'm sorry, I was frustrated because I didn't think you had read the content. Did he say, you're right, I haven't? No, he never, well, that's <laughs> But I felt better. I was like, well, it is, you know, I owned it. And it strikes me, you know, if you're a waitress, or a janitor, you don't get to scream at anybody. Right. You know, it's because of your elitist, wealthy, white privilege that you get to mail, yep. that hetero, that you get to scream at people. Yes, it's very true. That's very true. And I'm white. But I always find- Did I scream at you, Rachel? I don't think you've ever, no. I don't even think- I did a lot have. of screaming. No, you did, but the, the at me is yeah. not. No. I just think... Did a lot of phone slamming. Yeah, right. But it was never directed at me. Yeah. I think I've always found, even in trying to get people to do interviews or get what I needed out of them for television or for a story, it was always just being very direct and calm has always been my yeah. strategy. One of the things is if they're up here, their energy level yeah. is blah, 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 blah. If your energy level can be very intentionally to get lower and lower, like your voice right. is getting softer and softer. And so the differential becomes like really obvious. Yes. If we get struck by lightning today and the only thing that survives is this little piece of audio, what is your legacy? I just want people to think of me as somebody that cared for other people. How does that manifest itself? What does that look like? Well, I think it's for my family and, you know, living to help them and make sure that they're taken care of. I think um, in my job, it's for my colleagues, it's for the people that I interact with that are like our customers or the people that we're selling to. I want that to come from a other-centered place. Um, service. Yeah. 
Like there's a um, idea of servant leadership where you are there to, to help others. And I think that's a great place to operate from. It's a place where it's in our own enlightened self-interest to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, it's true. It helps you. It makes you a happier person. Yeah, along the way. Mm -hmm. And it makes it more likely to get what it is you want because you're able to use your words and ask for what you need. I may not get this from you, but here's what I'd really like. Well, you can look at it that way, but I think we all excel when we're all in a better place. I mean, it's better for me if the people around me feel great about themselves and are doing great things. And we're, I mean, it's just a better environment for everybody. And it strikes me that um, Orrin Hatch was probably more secure in his position than Arlen Specter was. Well, right. When, when, when you yell at people, like if you yell at the waitress or you yell at the 22-year-old television producer who's trying to put an IFB in your ear, ear so you can hear New York um, and not look like an idiot on television, <laughs> there's, um, that comes from someplace. Right. I mean, it, you either, it comes from your thinking you're better than everybody or it comes from anxiety or you feel like you're less than a lot of times. We didn't even talk about you being a great mom. <laughs> well, we can just say that. That's assumed. And a great do wife. To, do I have to talk? And, and a great that? wife. That's right. That's wonderful. Yeah. Rachel Clapmiller, it was really a great honor working with you. And I really appreciate you producing this podcast and speaking truth to me <laughs> about the ways I screw up. And also uh, for taking time to talk. Yes, thank you, Stuart. Thank you for having me. Isn't she wonderful? I am so blessed and I'm so grateful to Rachel. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you for what you do for Man Listening, for the podcast and, and uh, for being my colleague in some really in some national award-winning work. Uh, and all the best to you and your husband and your son and your new career. Uh, really, really smart. Thanks, Rachel. Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has helped Man Listening and supported us in whatever way you have from the very beginning. Thank you so very much. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks.